This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. We proudly welcome artist Samantha Sherry as our sponsor on the How to Love Live podcast, Sam is a world-class artist specializing in animal portraits. We invite you to check out her work at samanthasherry.com. Tell her Christian Gary sent you. Again, samanthasherry.com. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit Podcast. I think it's fairly obvious we didn't compose that diddly-doo. In fact, that wasn't a diddly-doo at all. Can you tell us why we're listening to a scratchy record of New Year's Eve music this week for the intro for this week's poetry supplement for Robert Burns and his wonderful poem to a mouse? Yes, of course. We're not going to feature the Western world's first original rock star without playing his most famous hit. And we might think of Liverpool and London as producing some of the world's most recognizable musicians and rock songs, um, but they just don't match the ubiquity of Robert Burns. Burns, who sadly died at the age of 37 and fathered at least, on my count, four loved children as well as nine legitimate ones, left a legacy to make any modern songwriter or rock star jealous. He wrote 368 songs, all of which have been recorded. Many have been recorded many times over by various artists for over 200 years, but none as often or more famously than perhaps than Auld Lang Syne. Uh, although I would be shocked if almost any of the New Year's singers who tearfully and joyfully sing and kiss on New Year's Eve over the song actually knows what the heck it means. Well, I have to be honest, I forget from one year to the next what it means, but I did look it up for this, and so it it transliterates from the Old Scots, which, by the way, is a northern dialect of England, English, not England, uh, as the phrase, old, long, since. But if we're wanting to say what it really means, if we were going to talk like that today, it means the idea is for old time's sake. And that's why we sing it on New Year's Eve. There you go. Everywhere. Everywhere. So Robert Burns is not a poet. He's not a, even a musician. He is a phenomenon. Uh, and that's what I like about him. That's what makes him so interesting. 
Uh, I didn't know about the tradition of the burn suppers, but after learning about them, I will not let another January 25th go by without its due attention. I know, and we even have one here in Memphis that we've let slip through our fingers all these years. I'm ashamed to confess I didn't know about them either. And I've been trying to find some accurate numbers from how many there are, and the numbers range from 12,000 to 70,000 annual burn suppers. That means that many every year. It's just kind of hard to imagine these many this many people collectively gathering to honor this tradition, but it uh, clearly is a big deal. He's just one of the largest heroes from Scotland ever, um, and his fame even reaches to Memphis. And they have a burn supper here, and uh, they hold the burn supper at the Woodland Hills Banquet Hall. Here in Memphis, which is the same place where we have a lot of proms every year. It's truly amazing, and it's kind of a fun idea that a poet could collect this kind of a legacy. Uh, They say that the tradition started in 1801 with just nine of his former friends. That's just five years after he died. Tell us what they did to me and they still do it's kind of funny yeah oh yeah the burn suppers have a protocol that have to be followed um they eat haggis which for those you don't know is boiled sheep entrails and people who are into more authentic food would be able to tell us more detail but anyway the they eat haggis they make a speech and today they follow the same order service as they did back then they play the bagpipes to salute the haggis. They read Burns' salute to the haggis poem. They toast the haggis. They sing several other Burns songs. They toast to the lassies, which I'm pretty sure is politically incorrect. But anyway, they let the lassies counter toast. And of course, they finish with Old Lang Syne. It's a glorious celebration. I've seen some YouTubes of it. They all involve dancing. But the question remains... Who's the man that started such a thing, and how did he create, or how did the world create this cult following? Uh, We want to go back, uh, anyway, this episode, and look at what this all is about, and then we're going to look specifically at the poem that gives our book its title, To a Mouse. Burns was born in 1759 in what was really humble conditions in a village called Alloway. He was raised in a two-room house And by two rooms, the people lived in one room and the animals lived in the other. If you go to the official Robert Burns website, which I did, there's a picture of the house there. And it's kind of cool to see. He was the eldest of seven children. But his father, for all of his poverty, really saw the importance of education. I really think saw the brilliance of Burns and devoted a lot of their resources to providing a fairly sophisticated education, at least for people at that time. He learned some French and English and Latin, enough to kind of get him on his way, and he took a lot of his own uh, agency and effort for the rest of his life, really continuing to study the Bible, Shakespeare, Pope, lots of English and Scottish writers. He also, because his mom was really into this, focused a lot of his time learning old Scottish songs and stories. And he developed a passion for that particular um, avenue, really, that is a thread throughout his entire career, even to the very day that he died. Even at the height of his celebrity, which was short-lived during his lifetime, but immediate after his death, 
He was known to be this, quote, man of the people, the plowman farmer. And he composed a large amount of poetry while plowing in his field before going out and then writing down his thoughts. His poverty was the trademark of his fame, but it's also what made him a rebel against the social order of his day. He watched his father literally work himself to death, leasing farmland and then going bankrupt. Burns, because he was the oldest boy, was left in charge to feed the entire family, and he went hungry and worked himself to the bone. In fact, his early death is attributed to the malnutrition and starvation from his childhood and adolescence. So he does have a lot of social contempt for the conditions that working people were living in of his day. And to some degree, if he were around today, we would call him a social activist. Now, uh, beyond Burns's life, Scotland itself was going through uh, an interesting transition during his lifetime, which actually probably created the environment that gave him his unique status. What was going on in a political sense was that Scotland was an independent country with its own language called Middle Scots. They had their own culture and actually were more heavily influenced by France because there was a large Catholic population even after the Reformation had swept a large part of Great Britain. So things changed, however, when King James VI of Scotland became the King of England because Queen Elizabeth had no heirs. He moved the throne and the court to London from Edinburgh. When he did, Scott culture was really at risk after that point. And not just Scottish culture, but the Scottish language. All of a sudden, educated people were not going to be studying or writing in Scots. They would speak in Scots at home, but when they went to school, they were writing in English. Now, we're familiar with this in America because lots of first-generation Americans and second-generation Americans have to approach language this way. They have one um, language that they speak at home, and then when they go to school, they they learn a a different language. In, In America, of course, that's English. But the Scott language, just like any language like that, was going away, and the many different dialects were being consumed, and it seemed like their entire culture was going to be consumed by the English culture. Now, how does this go back to Burns? Well, he had this odd education of being... Uh, a lot of things literary because of his tutor, but his mother raised him in this culture of folk music that was very much Scottish. In April 1783, Burns wrote his first recorded poem. It was actually a song, and he wrote it to a girl that he fell in love with, which was, this was going to be the theme of his entire life. He falls in love a lot. I know, he does. That's It's the theme of his entire life. It's funny, you know, you mentioned that you found out that he had four illegitimate children. That is a sketchy number. People aren't ready to commit to how many illegitimate children that he had. We're guessing. Right, but he fell in love with all of the women. It wasn't like he was a philanderer. He Mm. loved deeply. (laughs) But it's it's kind of funny to me that he started his whole poetry career in this way. Uh, Gary, read for us the comment that he wrote in his book before writing the words of this very first love song. When he was first inspired, he said, There is certainly some connection between love and music and poetry. I never had the least thought or inclination of turning poet till I once got heartily in love and in rhyme and song and harem in a manner the spontaneous language of my heart. 
To me, you kind of have it in a nutshell. Burns didn't write to solve the problems of the universe like Golding, or he's not trying to make political changes like Langston Hughes. He just writes about love, about happiness, about things that make him smile, about things that make him sad, about things that make him angry, about religion as he saw it. He wrote about common life. He felt things so strongly and he could write exactly how he felt. Keats a few years later would say about his poetic character that it lives in gusto, be it foul or fair, high or low. Burns was very critical of hypocritical people because he himself was so authentic and real and he makes fun of them all the time, especially self-righteous ones. The lassies were a big thing with Burns. Elizabeth Patton was the mother of his first child and no, they weren't married and he writes a poem about being in love and just falling in love with his first baby. And of course, everybody knows, well, if you know anything about Burns, you know Auld Lang Syne and you probably know Oh, my love is a red, red rose. And that's the one that he wrote to the woman who he would eventually marry, Jean Armour. Yes, and that that poem itself was so influential that Bob Dylan said that poem alone is what inspired him to become a songwriter. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Well, he was always writing lots of things. And there's lots that we don't know. In fact, there's a lot of phrases that we say that until I looked them up, I didn't realize they were attributed to him. The phrase clean as a whistle, uh, make a silk purse out of a sow's ear, man's inhumanity to man. These, of course, originated with Burns. Uh, To see ourselves as others see us. And, of course, our famous line, the best laid plans of mice and men that John Steinbeck will pick up on. He fell in love in 1786 with a woman named Jean Armour. She gave birth out of wedlock to twins, and her dad was mad. Burns wanted to marry her, but her dad went nuts, and he tried to make it his personal mission in life to destroy Burns. This eventually gets to Burns. Burns realizes he's screwing up his life. He has no money. His farm isn't going well. He got another girlfriend, and she died. And that's when he decides he's got to get out. So he says, there's nothing else to do but move to Jamaica. Hmm. And ironically, that's how he finally caught a break. Mr. Armour was trying to sue him for child support for the twins. So Burns publishes a book of poetry to make some money and move out of the country. The book was published in a town called Kilmarnock. And who would have guessed it? But the volume goes viral, and people went nuts over it, and he made a lot of money, as well as he became famous. And instead of going to Jamaica, he goes to Edinburgh, where he was treated like a celebrity. How do you say that city now? All right, so there's a war going on as to how you pronounce this city. I'm going to go out on a limb and say Edinburgh. Now, if you talk with people who actually live there, there are all kind of derivations on it. But the most common one that they agreed upon is Edinburgh, so I'm going to err in that direction. And what people liked about uh, his poetry and what made him famous that day and has continued really to make him the national poet of Scotland was that he was writing in dialect, and, and Scottish dialect. And he was talking about working life of the people that they were familiar with and the life that they were living, and they loved him for it. 
It was different than Langston Hughes writing folk poems about the common man, even though we saw that and that made Langston Hughes famous. He was writing th- things about everyday life, and it's it's similar to that. But Burns, instead of saying I'm writing about common folks, had this kind of reverse approach to it. He said, no, common ver- common Scotsmen are just the same as the English, the high and mighty English in their sophisticated salons. So he was going out to the fancy people and saying, our life is just as good as yours. And they would call him the plowman farmer. And he kind of played this up all over Edinburgh. 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 (laughs) Uh, And knowing that, you know, this was a shtick and it wasn't going to last forever, but I'm going to live this moment and milk it for all it's worth. To be truthful, Burns actually composed most of his poetry while farming including to a mouse. It seems kind of hard to believe uh, that this would be fashionable, but you have to remember that this is the era of the French Revolution. So liberty, fraternity, equality, these are the ideas of the Enlightenment, and that's fashionable. So you have to think of it as he being in the right place and hitting on a political popular trend. Burns wrote in the vernacular, and this was considered a political statement and was really well received. So the Kilmarnock volume, as they call it, was full of political satire. It had dance jigs. Burns loved to dance, and a lot of his stuff was danceable, including to a mouse, which is danceable. Right, we'll find out how. There's some funny ones. There's some criticism of of religion and the way people were practicing it. One famous one was from the perspective of a dog, and these were all very well received. So in that vein, uh, are we ready to tackle to a mouse? Yes, let's give it a try. After we do that, we can go back and talk about how his life ended. It was kind of a short life. He died at age 37. That's another thing rock stars do. Hmm. Hmm. So this poem, To a Mouse, is also written completely in dialect, and this is a dialect that is uniquely indigenous to Scotland. Uh, and one of the funny things about this dialect, funny in the sense that it's cute, is they use a lot of diminutives. So beastie, breasty, mousy, these are all words that are small, kind of like Christy, I guess, <laughs> my name. <laughs> my name. Um, also, To a Mouse was written in something called Standard Haby. Now, Standard Haby is a form it's a, it's like a stanza form in the way that the English have their sonnets. It was a very specific style of writing. And for people that understand how rhyme goes, it's an A-A-A-B-A-B rhyme scheme. So the first three lines and then the fifth line are going to rhyme. So A-A-A-B-A-B. And he's going to follow that pattern in every single stanza. I would just like to say that makes no sense to me, but I'm not an artist with okay. words. Okay, so we have a specific rhyme scheme that's going on, and it's also written in iams. Now, we talked about this before. It's the beating of the human heart, ba-dump, ba-dump, ba-dump. but this one has four, so it's called iambic tentrameter, and then there's two lines of iambic diameter. Now, the, all that to say is that there's a kind of a syncopated drum dancey music kind of ba-dump, ba-dump, ba-dump that's going to go through it and it gives it kind of a light beat we sleek a cower and timis beastie oh what a panic in thy breasty so there's a mm-hmm. beat to it that is going to kind of go 
all the way through the poem. Now, I find it interesting. This is kind of a sad poem. He's talking to a mouse, and we'll talk about it. <laughs> but because of of the the rhythm, it never achieves the darkness that we see in Steinbeck's version right. to a mouse. I want to interject that for just a second. I stop your flow of poetry discussion, but it is interesting that Steinbeck's book is so dark, and Burns' poetry is the exact opposite. Right. None of his poetry is very dark at all. Mm-hmm. But it, that's not to say that he doesn't talk about sad things, because he does, but the way that he says it, Makes it a little bit more hopeful, so you can be sad and be Burns happy, I guess, to Burns some degree. Happy. That's a new term. Yeah. So here he is out there, literally plowing a field when he runs over a mouse's nest and creates this most famous work. Yes. So I'm going to try to read it in American Scott. <laughs> it's a. It's going to be a disaster. So please don't right. be super critical, and I'll try to kind of explain uh, the words that we don't know at all as we go through it. Well, and we've already belabored the point. He writes it in Scottish dialect to appeal to his uh, nationhood, to the people in his country. So we're going to read it as is. Sort of. It's not good. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, we'll do the best we can. We slicken, cowering, timorous beastie. Oh, what a panic's in thy breastie. Thou need, need not start away so hasty with bickering brattle. I would be loath to run and chase thee with murdering paddle. So I'm going to try to translate that. Okay. No, we means small, small little beast. And he sees his chest beating out. There's a panic in your breast. He can see, you know, the heart beating. He says, you don't have to go away so hastily in sudden flight. I'm not going to chase you with my murdering paddle. And then he's going, so that's, and then we go to stanza two. I'm truly sorry man's dominion has broken nature's social union and justifies that ill opinion which makes thee startle at me, thy poor earthbound companion and fellow mortal. And here you see his English enlightenment, Mm. irony, sarcasm kind of coming in. I'm truly sorry man's dominion. These are political words. We have broken nature's social union. And in other words, we're not supposed to be killing our fellow brotherhood, and he's going to elevate the mouse to to the level of fellow mortal. So he's going to say, but we have. And so that justifies the ill opinion that you have of me, which makes you startle, uh, thy poor earthbound frenzy kind of companion. Right. And I can't really say that a mouse has changed his opinion on a human, but nonetheless... I doubt not, while well, but thou may thieve. What then? Poor beastie, thou mon live. A demonicker and a thrave is a small request. I'll get a blessing with the lave and never miss it. In other words, I understand why you have to thieve. He says, our little occasional grain of ear, a teeny tiny sharing of, of, the, of the common food, it's a small regu- request. And I'll get a blessing, and I won't even miss it. And again, I think we see a little digging at uh, his fellow humans who hoard. Hmm. Okay. I doubt, I'm sorry, next slide. Thy wee bit housey too in ruin. Now remember, housey's a little house. Thy wee bit housey too in ruin. It's silly was the winds a strewin'. 
and nothing now to build a new one of foggage green. Uh, bleak December's winds and stewing, bath snell and keen. This one has a little bit more difficult vocabulary. So he looks at his little house because he's just torn it up with his plow and he sees that the walls have all gone down and it's going to be a lot uh, to build a new house and with bleak December's winds sharp coming. Thou saw the fields laid bare and waste and weary winter coming fast and cozy here beneath the blast thou thought to dwell till crash the cruel coulter passed out through thy cell. So in essence, this mouse had done a lot of work to build this house to protect himself from the weary winter and he thought he had it all taken care of till crash the plow bait blade comes down and destroys it that wee bit heap of leaves and stibble has cost thee many a weary nibble though thou's turned out for all thy trouble but house or hold to thrall the winter's sleety dribble and crawl right cold i'm sure i didn't pronounce it (laughs) yeah (laughs) so he's looking at the little wee bit of leaves And he's thinking about how long it took him to put those little pieces of leaves together. And after all that, he's been turned out for his trouble. And of course, that's something he could identify with himself. Yes. Out of house and and property. Is he projecting his own life onto the life of the mouse? You you could interpret it that way. I guess you could. (laughs) If authors write out of their experience, you can say that. But he's not the only one. But mousy, thou art no lane in proving foresight may be vain. The best laid schemes of mice and men gang off a glay and leave us naught but grief and pain for promised joy. So he goes, little mouse, you are not alone in proving that foresight can be in vain. The best schemes of mice and men often go awry. And they leave us nothing but grief and pain when we were expecting promised joy. Still thou art blessed compared with me. The present only touches thee. But ouch, I backward cast my eye on prospects drear. And forward though I cannot see, I guess and fear. So well, then, that, <laughs> those last two stanzas take a turn, don't they? They do. They go dark. Because he's saying, you know what? This is awful what happened to you, but you're better off than me. Compared with me, you're lucky because you only can, your brain, your little mousy brain is so small, you can only think about the present. But me, I have a big brain and I can look back and think about all the bad things that happened and then I can go look to the, to the future and I can see all the bad things that could possibly happen and then I have to be afraid. Yes, he's cursed by consciousness. Cursed by consciousness. But and the poor mousey. The mouse just has to go build another house somewhere. So, back to John Steinbeck. I, it's obvious where he gets the phrase. Right. The best laid schemes of mice and men gang off a glay. What do you think about that in terms of the book? Well, first of all, you know, one of the opening scenes in Of Mice and Men is Lenny walking around with a dead mouse that he has petted to death. That he certainly didn't mean to do any harm to, but he and his humanness has crushed the mouse. 
So I, I'm only guessing that Steinbeck intended that uh, parallel to go on. Yeah, maybe, maybe he didn't. Maybe, maybe he's the mouse. Yes, could that be. He certainly had a scheme. Yes, he did. And it went... Awry. It went awry. <laughs> As they do. And left them nothing but grief and pain. Which is exactly how Of Mice and Men ends. And is basically the summation of the whole plot of Mice and Men. So Burns had the idea... But, of course, we've all had this idea. How many times have we had plans that have gone awry and you've practiced, you've tried, you've built, and and your, and your whole world came crashing down? And in some sense, Burns' world came crashing down, too. He dies at age 37 from rheumatic fever. And even after the great success of his uh, first book, he doesn't get anyone to sponsor him. He doesn't come back with a fortune and he ends up in the interior of Scotland. He kind of bounces around to a couple of farms and he eventually lands in a town called Dumfries and after some other liaisons, he settles down with Jean and they get married and he's eventually going to have nine children. Uh, He gets a good job as a tax collector and was really kind of successful at it, but his health was just never going to be good. And he couldn't stop working. He had this frenetic mind. He had this frenetic work pace. In fact, they say that he would have all these kids just running around the house all the time, and it didn't even phase him. He was focused in and zoned on his work. Which is interesting because there is a, a collection of research that we've had some people who've done some, well, I guess you would call some uh, diag- psychological diagnostic work, and it was commonly felt amongst some Scottish psychiatrists that he suffered from bipolar disorder. Now, there's always a danger in diagnosing people after they're dead and years past. That doesn't stop people from doing that anyway, but apparently that could have been potentially been an issue for him. Well, he was definitely a person who felt all the ranges of human emotions and he was just all over the place no one would deny that and he uh he wrote often of the dark times and the dark places he would go into but then it could be followed up by that frenetic energy and he did have a lot of frenetic energy towards the end of the life he was collaborating on this project he wanted to record all these scottish songs and he was worried that they were gonna you know be lost and he was working on this project literally until the day that he died And of course, ironically, the day that he dies is the exact same day that his wife goes into labor with their ninth child. So he dies on the birthday of his his son. Extremely tragic. Yeah. And he was a very kind of unpopular there at the end of his life. He had gotten involved in supporting the French Revolution, and that had been controversial on some of the things that he said. However... As soon as he died, I mean, as soon as he died, the entire country, strangely, is going to rally around him, and he immediately becomes this national hero. They say that 10,000 people were were to follow him to his grave when he died there, when he was buried in Dumfries. Contributions started to pour in, money that he could never have when he was alive, and this was great because it supported Gene and all those kids. Two marble monuments went up, one in Dumfries where he died and the other in Air when he was born. And, of course, just a few years later, we're going to start the Burn Suppers. And he becomes the rock star, legendary hero of Scotland, the national poet, the one of their most famous exports. And if you have any Scottish friends, ask them about Robert Burns. 
Burns is the working man's poet. His dialect, although of Scotland, is kind of representative of dialects around the world. He speaks of farming, of working man's profession, the troubles of love, of work, and so many things that common people every day we live with. He cries for us. He rejoices for us. He's resilient for us. And this whole time, he never loses his step, his beat, his passion, even in the sad songs. And the song and the dance of life, even after his death, is what people remember him by. And how interesting that his most famous work, Auld Lang Syne, is about remembering times past with people that you love, which sums up his existence. Yeah, melancholy sweet. Yes. All right, uh, that's the conclusion of our... uh, of Mice and Men, and of course, following that, Robert Burns. Next week, we're going to change directions completely. We are. We're going to jump off into a whole new work next time. Tell us about that, Christy. We're going to go south of the equator, down to Brazil, and meet the poet Paulo Coelho. And he's going to write, we're going to read his most famous work, The Alchemist, which isn't set in Brazil. It's set in Spain, and then, of course, northern Africa. So join with us in this adventure tale. It's not dark at all. It's adventurous and upbeat, and off we go. Yes, and I tell you right now, listeners, I'm going to make Christy speak Portuguese every episode when we discuss this book, just so we can give the authentic flair to it. But anyway, thanks for being with us. We hope you enjoyed this fun discussion about Robert Burns and the the great cult that surrounds him uh, and the culture that, that surrounds him also. And uh, if you like what you're hearing and you want to be a friend of ours, please join us on our Facebook page, the How to Love Lit Podcast Facebook page, howtolovelitpodcast.com. Follow us on Instagram at How to Love Lit Podcast. We're everywhere. We'd love to hear from you. And on that note, I will say goodbye the Brazilian way. Beijos. Ciao, ciao. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com 